Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, everyone. I hope you're doing well This is just a couple of quick yet very exciting housekeeping announcements before this week's podcast. The first one is that our new podcast series, Treasures from the Vault, has now launched. It's available to download. So please go and find it on your favorite podcast app, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from, wherever you're listening to this podcast, please go and check out Treasures from the Vault because I think you'll really enjoy it. Basically, it's me telling stories of history via historic objects. So I'm visiting wonderful museums, archives, libraries all over the world and examining some of their rare items, often that are not even on display to the public, and then telling the story of history through those items. So the first episode is on Jack the Ripper, told via the famous Dear Boss letter. Uh, We've also got a wonderful story about the first Japanese Zero aircraft that was shot down and captured intact by the Allies during the Second World War. Shakespeare's first folio, the Sydney versus Emden during the First World War. We've got a whole range of wonderful stories there. So please go and download that podcast. It's called Treasures from the Vault. And please also give it a five-star rating and leave a review. That helps other people find it. And hopefully we can all continue this great journey through history together. The second piece of housekeeping news is something I've mentioned before. Peter Hart's next book, All About the Gallipoli Evacuation, is coming out in September. We are publishing that book in September. But from June, it will be available to pre-order. And if you pre-order the book via our website, which is livinghistorytv.com, you will receive from Peter Hart a special audio file, a private podcast just for you people that buy the book in its early stages. And this podcast is effectively a behind-the-scenes visit with Peter Hart to the construction of the book. Peter's going to talk about the various chapters. He's going to talk about how he put the book together, his inspiration. He's going to give extra details that aren't included in the book. But also, most importantly, it's going to include those audio interviews with veterans that Peter used to help put the book together. So you will hear, in their own words, Gallipoli veterans talking about their experience of fighting at Gallipoli. So this exclusive audio file, this director's cut of the construction of this book is going to be available only to people who pre-order the book via our website. So that will be available from June. Please go and pre-order the book. It's going to be something really wonderful. Peter Hart's The Gallipoli Evacuation coming out in September. Pre-order it on our website, livinghistorytv.com and receive that special audio file from Peter Hart. Enjoy this week's podcast. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Living History and a topic that I think you're really going to enjoy. We're going to talk about medical care during the First World War. It's something that, unless you're an expert, I think you tend to overlook. 
We just sum it all up. We say a soldier was wounded in a battle, but we don't really understand what that means. So I've got someone here to explain to us exactly what it means and to look at all the intricacies of medical care during the First World War. It's Andy Robertshaw. Andy, you've been on the podcast before. Welcome back. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Mate, I'm really fascinated to talk about this because a confession at the start, I don't know enough about this myself. I've done a lot of reading on the topic. I've written about the, the First World War battles, but I don't have a good understanding of the medical you know, processes of the First World War. So I'm really looking forward to digging into that. Let's start, though. Before we start talking about medical treatment, let's just talk, what are we talking about here? What is the nature of the wounds that men could expect to receive on a First World War battlefield? Okay. Can, can I sort of, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll do the wounds, then we'll talk about something else to go with that one. Um, basically, the, the, the wounds that people were, were thinking about were those that were caused by high-velocity rounds, either from a machine gun or a rifle, which would be thrown through, wounds caused by shrapnel shells. Now, shrapnel shells burst in the air. Um, they're timed to do that, and they produce a cloud of shrapnel balls. Um, they are the, 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 the true shrapnel. And then there are shell fragments, which are pieces of high-explosive shell, um, which go off on contact with the ground. Now, each of those three will produce a different type of penetrating wound that may or may not go right through the body, depending what it is. Um, and clearly, one of the problems with anything that goes off on the ground is that it will itself pick up debris and that means that that wound even if it's not severe could become infected you mentioned shrapnel you mentioned high explosive obviously injuries from shell fire which were very common during the first world war uh, with these large slow moving fragments could be quite damaging to, t- to flesh and bone couldn't they Yes, um, they could. I mean, in terms of what kills people in the Great War, this is kind of a, a rule of thumb. It's it's about 0.3% people die from bayonet wounds because you've got to get so close. And, 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 and you know, that's the way it is. About not, uh, about 3% die from gas. 3% die from quite low. Um, and then really about 75%, 70-75% from shell injuries, fragments, um, you know, that kind of thing. But machine guns and, and rifles don't cause that many casualties, which is odd. But then you think about it, the guys most of the time are in trenches, and therefore you can't get shot if you're in a trench unless you put your head up. We've all heard those horror stories about the American Civil War, for example, with limbs being hacked off without anaesthetic and just the the, the horrible nature of being wounded throughout the history of warfare. Was the medical treatment in the First World War any good? It was. I mean, the the, the situation really is that the um, Royal Army Medical Corps um, is formed in 1898. Within a few weeks, it's, it's in action in the Sudan. Then we have the experience of the Boer War, 1899 to 1902. Um, and really, it's an inoculation, sorry to use that term, of modern warfare, bearing in mind that our enemy, the, the, the Germans and our allies, the French, their last big war was 1870-71. We are fighting a war with modern medical techniques, which have obviously really improved since, as you said, the American Civil War, and also exposure to mass casualties caused by bad sanitation and hygiene. I mean, the big killer in the Boer War, 14,000, is disease. 
that's not replicated in the Great War because actually we're really very, very hot on, on sanitation and hygiene, which sounds bizarre, but actually, you know, it's, it's about 2% of our casualties die of disease in the Great War. Um, on the Western Front, it, it's worse elsewhere, as you can imagine. Perhaps Gallipoli is a good example. So how much planning before a big battle went into the medical treatment of the wounded? We'll give you an example. Before the first day of the Somme, the director of medical services and his team, um, there already was in place within every unit the following services. At regimental level, battalion level, you've got a regimental medical officer. He's got three REMC orderlies, 16 stretcher bearers. Very often they're doubled up, so you've got 32 16 stretchers for each battalion. He deals with the casualties locally as soon as they're brought in, and every man has a, a field dressing in case he, he gets wounded himself. And then the evacuation is then do, done through what's called field ambulances. And there are three field ambulances per division, in other words, one per brigade. And that means there are groups of RAMC personnel who are responsible for evacuation treatments of the casualties going all the way back to casualty clearing stations perhaps 14 miles from the trenches and then right the way back to base hospitals or back to the UK and and um, for, for, for British soldiers a blighty wound is a wound that gets you home um, and my granddad had one of those in 1917. So it was very carefully organised and they planned for 40,000 casualties on the 1st of July. They were wrong, but it was 57,000. And that's why in some places the whole system collapses. There were too many. But as the war goes on, based on that kind of experience, we just get better at it. You mentioned uh, before we started recording that your grandfather uh, was uh, someone who who went through a couple of incidences of being wounded. Just tell us about his experience because uh, it, it sums up pretty neatly um, how the system worked. My grandfather was wounded um, in May 1917 near Arras. He joined the, the British Army in the, in 16 and got out to the Somme in, in late 16. Um, he was injured by shell fragments. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, he then was evacuated right through that chain of evacuation back to um, Etarp on the coast. The biggest cemetery, by the way, uh, on the Western Front is actually at Etarp. Um, because that's dealing with a, a cluster of hospitals and guys who then die of septic shock or peritonitis, you know, things that today we can deal with with, with penicillin, they are buried there. Um, he didn't die. Um, the Canadians gave him brilliant treatment. Thank you, the Canadians. Um, and by September, he was back with his unit. Uh, I know it was September because um, he got wounded again, um, this time actually by grenade fragments. Um, a German prisoner decided it was a really good idea to kill him um, and failed. But he was badly injured and he was evacuated back back to the UK and ended up quite close to his home, actually, uh, in Yorkshire, in a place called Keithley. And he was in hospital there and he made a full recovery and he was back to France in time for the German offensive in March 1918. Um, uh, um, um, and then in August, he was gassed, luckily for him, slightly. So that was his three experiences. As you say there, Andy, it uh, really sums up the experience for, uh, it sounds like a fairly common experience. If you're going to be in the front line long enough, you're going to get in the way of of something. And it also demonstrates, though, the fact that they patched him up and he kept coming back. And as you say, perhaps earlier in the war, he wouldn't have survived or wouldn't have been treated as as well with uh, some of those wounds. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the war is a human tragedy, but... 
in terms of developments, let's think, what do we get? We get anti-tetanus serum, so people no longer die of that great horror lockjaw, which is a, a great thing that, that killed many people, both in civilian life and us. It was actually um, synthesized from, from horse blood because their horses are exposed to tetanus. Um, we then get mass use of um, blood transfusions, very rarely used in the UK um, in 1914, very common by 1917 and my granddad certainly benefited from that from the the americans when he was wounded and, and treated in rouen uh, we also then get plastic surgery uh, which again relatively unknown but lots of experience means you get very good at it and we even get quite good at dealing with the onset of infection um, where everyone knows about gangrene um how do we do it well basically we realize that if you stitch up wounds you create beautiful atmosphere for, for gangrene to, to uh, spread in so we come up with help by the french um the wound irrigation system the dakin carroll method and the wound is flushed out to flush away the bacteria smelly and horrible but very very effective and 80 percent of the wound would make a full recovery and return to active service 80 percent Wow, that's an extraordinary figure. Just just so Isn't I've it? just so I've got a clear understanding and the listeners have got a clear understanding. Talk us through the process. If I was a soldier in the front line and I got hit by a shell fragment, what was the process that would then occur from to evacuate me from the front line and give me medical treatment? Okay. I'm going to do it slightly differently. Uh, it, it's a normal morning. Uh, there's no big battle planned. And uh, you've got a toothache or you've got an ingrowing toenail. Um, you go and you parade before the dugout of the regimental medical officer for sick parade. And he says, you're actually okay. You're not going to do any work today. I'm going to give you some tablets. Go sit down. That's That happens every day, whether you're in billets or in trenches. But in battle, let's assume that you go over the top. And as soon as you go over the top, you get hit. You're shot through the left arm you lay on the floor you realize you can't go any further you reach into your tunic and sewn into the right front quarter is a, a field dressing you tear it open with your teeth because your left arm's not working and then you bandage yourself up um clearly the stretcher bearers are collecting wounded but they're going to leave you alone because you don't need a stretcher if you've been shot through the arm let's assume you then stand up um to make your way back to the rear to go find the regimental medical officer at the regimental aid post and you're hitting the right thigh okay this is bad you fall over again this time it's a job for the stretcher bearers and the stretcher bearers are wearing a white armband with red lettering sb and they're members of your battalion or they're members of your uh, battery if you're a, you're a gunner in other words they're your mates and they're going to come over and their job is having been tra- trained by the rmo is to apply shell dressing much bigger dressing than the field dressing because he's looking for shell injuries they may be able to put a tourniquet on they certainly can't do with pain relief but what they'll then do is they'll take you back to your regimental medical officer and if you think about it and the size of a battalion a thousand men it means that you're always within what two or three hundred yards of a doctor um which when you think about it means that magic hour that we all know about is actually much easier to organize in the trenches and the one thing the regimental medical officer shouldn't do is go out looking for the wounded because if he gets hit 
then other people have problems. And what he will do is when he sees you, obviously your left arm's a bit messed up, your right leg is bad. Early in the war, frankly, they try splinting your leg. They might even use a rifle. By 1917, he will have a marvellous device called a, a Thomas splint. And that Thomas splint is a means of relieving pressure caused by a fractured femur, which otherwise is a big killer. Developed during the war, keeps you actually reasonably comfortable you'll get pain relief and you'll then go back and depending upon the nature of your wounds you'll go back to the train of evacuation back to an advanced dressing station or a main dressing station and then back ultimately to a casualty clearing station which is a 600 bed hospital where you'll eventually be sent um, to a specialist hospital it's very carefully organized could look terribly chaotic, but it, it, it works. It really works. As you're describing that, Andy, something strikes me that often strikes me about the First World War, and that's the development of the processes, the development of the weapons, the development of the technology, and in this instance, the development of medical care. And even though it was a century ago, that strikes me as a very well-organised system, a very modern system. That's something that I reckon a soldier on the battlefield today would recognise. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, I, I was speaking to to the, the Royal Army Medical Corps in, in a, 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 a lecture I gave the other day, um, online, as it were, and what they were saying, and they were about to be deployed, it's very, very similar to the way it's done today. Now, clearly, there are no helicopters, and we don't have the modern drugs, but in terms of the, 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 the speed of, of casualty evacuation, and also putting medical personnel in harm's way. I mean, the figures might surprise you, but 743 doctors from British America, British, uh, Canadian, Australian doctors are killed in the Great War. 6,130 other ranks. Why? Because they're on the battlefield doing the, the casualty evacuation. And there's only two people in the Great War who get two VCs. Uh, and one is Nel Shavas, the other one is Martin Leake. Um, and they're both doctors. You know, I think this is everything. This system we're talking about, Andy, how much did it evolve from 1914 to, say, 1917? The original system with the three field ambulances, one per brigade, was designed so you could have one working, one setting up, and one actually breaking down to move, because it was designed for a war of mobility. The problem was then that in 1915 into 16, 17, then you've got a static war. And there's a big argument that says actually the kind of field ambulance system with its advanced dressing stations and main dressing station gets in the way. What you really need to do is to zoom people off the battlefield, if you could zoom anything, straight back to a casualty clearing station because they're much better and they're bigger and they have nurses and not proper operating theatres and things. But of course, then in 1917, the Germans withdraw and we need a mobile system and then in 1918 they advance and we have to withdraw and then we need a mobile system and of course then from August onwards we're advancing and we need to keep leapfrogging forward so there's this point in the war people saying oh well the system's not working very well it's you know it's all getting in the way followed by ah now it makes sense because clearly nobody planned for static warfare Uh, and when static warfare happens then you really could have done with a a different system briefly you mentioned stretcher bearers when we were talking about being wounded talk to us a little bit about that where did the stretcher bearers come from how were they selected how were they trained okay stretcher bearers are a combination In, in some cases um 
this is at battalion level. At Royal Army Medical Corps, quite different. But at, at battalion level, they were early in the war very often members of, of the regimental band. They were the musicians um, because they weren't necessarily expected to be frontline soldiers. Sometimes they were volunteers. Sometimes they were chosen. Um, in certain units, you'd find actually that when people uh, volunteered or, or were called up, it would turn out there actually were a uh, somebody with a bit of medical background, it might be an ambulance man. And frankly, you know, the, the, the CEO or the adjutant would say, look, go see the regimental medical, medical officer. You know, we need you to do this job. So there's a whole mixture. The idea that they're all conscientious objectors doesn't really stack up. Uh, they're, they're probably not. But what they're not is massively medically trained. Sometimes the regimental medical officer would train a few people how to use the Spencer Wells forceps, artery forceps, to stop people bleeding to death. He would certainly make sure they had all the the, the, the uh, kit they need to deal with traumatic injuries on the battlefield and to get them back to him so he could do his job. Um, and it, it's a difficult and, and a, a dangerous job. And then the number of, of men that actually get awards for gallantry by being stretcher bearers. I mean, there's one man uh, within the, the, the first six Staffords who was the most decorated man in the British Army, uh, uh, you know, uh, up to the Victoria Cross. And he he was just a, a stretcher bearer. It's amazing. And everybody appreciated their work because clearly they, they were going to be lifesavers. Was a stretcher bearer a full-time job or were, were men from the ranks often pressed into carrying stretchers as well? Well, yeah. I mean, what would happen is there would normally be, in theory, the, the 16 of them. That means eight stretchers. So before a big battle, what you do is each stretcher bearer would get be given another guy to help him, basically, just to... Uh, to carry um and that would mean that you could then have 16 teams uh, working at any one time bearing in mind that many of your wounded are capable of walking um so stretcher bearers don't deal with everybody they only deal with those people who are as they would put it then non-ambulant those that, that can't walk um and they would have to make some pretty uh, difficult decisions and there are some harrowing uh, 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 footage of, of even doctors quite clearly uh, it's, it's in the, the film the Somme and in fact Peter Jackson used it um, when we made uh, They Shall Not Grow Old of a, a, a man on a stretcher shown to a doctor the doctor nods he points at the ambulance the guy goes in presented another patient he pulls back um, a blanket looks at him and then just points off to the side meaning he's not going on the ambulance and, and you know what decisions have been made must have been um extraordinarily difficult work for doctors especially the, considering they'd pledged to help uh, help all people who were brought to them now, it's funny you should say that one because the pages of the British Medical Journal um, are full of um, letters and comments and articles saying basically that, that doctors should not have to make this decision. They're, they've signed the Hippocratic Oath. They, they treat both the, the enemy wounded and our own men, and they should not have to choose to do what the French call triage. In other words, you know, categorise the wounded. Because clearly, for the army's point of view, they want 
treated quickly those people who will make a full recovery and return to the trenches. People with serious wounds for, for which probably there's no cure. You know, the question from the army's point of view is why are we treating them? Obviously look after them, make sure they don't die in pain, but don't spend hours on a guy with an abdominal injury who probably will die of parasititis when there are perhaps eight people with limb injuries that will get better. It, 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 it's an anguish time for many people. You mentioned treatment of the enemy, and even just yesterday I was uh, doing some research in the Battle of Lakato, uh, which was an area where no Australians really actively participated, yet I found a number of Australians buried in a cemetery at Lakato who'd been killed in 1916, and I couldn't work it out at first, but then it struck me that these men had been wounded and captured by the Germans during fighting on the Somme, and then while they were being taken back to a prison camp, they died and were therefore buried in the nearest British cemetery, which happened to be this one from 1914. But it just raised that question again. What sort of treatment? I mean, even it might be impossible to generalise, but what sort of treatment could we expect that enemy, the enemy would receive, whether it was us treating Germans or Germans treating our men? Okay. I mean, it, medical personnel, um, including stretcher bearers, uh, if they're captured, uh, have to uh, um, offer their services to their captors to assist their own wounded and and um, the, the the enemy's wounded. Um, at least one British corporal at one point, who actually was a medical student before the war, captured in 1918, he gets told off um, actually by the Germans because he speaks good German and he keeps telling people what to do. And he's told, look, you don't have the authority to tell sergeants what to do, even you're very knowledgeable so what we're going to do is temporarily you're a sergeant in the german army so you can do what you and carry on what you're doing <laughs> um and in 1919 he applied for a pension from berlin and, and they a uh, humorous bastard didn't give him it but that's a, a good example and i came across the other day from my own family uh, a, a letter from someone saying that he was badly wounded in the foot the germans treated his foot and kept it he, he didn't lose it. And he said, I think the REMC would have chopped it off. So, you know, he had a very, very good reason to be grateful to German surgeons. We talked about the role of the very important role of stretcher bearers. Talk to me about the role of female nurses, because it's the one thing we always think about when we think about men and women involved in the war. We think about the, the, the white clad nurses, you know, providing this wonderful service. Tell us about the role of female nurses in the, the medical treatment. Okay. Well, I'm going to throw some figures at you. Uh, the outbreak of war, Queen Alexander's Imperial Nursing Service, was 297 women. That's not many, is it? The Army Nursing Services Reserve provides then another 11,000. The Territorial uh, uh, Forces Nursing Service, the, 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 the territorial version of that one, provides another 8,000. But during the war, it's estimated something like 80,000 women are operating as members of the VAD, either from Red Cross or St. John's Ambulance. And would you believe, on top of that, another third of VADs are men. No one's ever heard about VADs being men. So we're talking here about 100,000 women who are working really running the entire military nursing service in the UK, in addition to then actually working up to at least cash clearing station level on the Western Front. And then, of course, add to that first aid nursing yeomanry, ambulance uh, drivers who were also medically trained, going forward to basically advanced dressing stations just beyond the trenches to collect the wounded. So, you know, your first experience of 
um, meeting a, a female member of the medical services might be being put into an ambulance by uh, two orderlies and your ambulance driver is female. Uh, and she would take you into a casualty clearing station where you might be received by a nursing sister rather than by a doctor. You know, they are everywhere on the battlefield. And, you know, uh, obviously the, the, the men appreciate that. And, and the fact that it's such a contrast between the battlefield and then straight back to a hospital where you're going to receive treatment. And there are nurses and hopefully that uh, they're pretty. Well, the casualty clearing stations are relatively close to the front line. Do, do we have any information about how many nurses were killed or wounded during the war? Yeah, I mean, not a large number. I mean, the total number of nurses, I think we're looking at, at a, a couple of hundred, most of whom actually die on troop ships uh, or hospital ships that were torpedoed, um, sadly. Um, some, uh, like Nellie Spindler, uh, killed by um, long-range um, shell fire. She's buried at Listenhook, um, the only woman there. So not th- that many, but but clearly they are they are present on the battlefield. And when later in the war the the, 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 the Germans start bombing rear areas, including the hospitals at Atarp, then I'm afraid women are killed in some numbers. And if if you do go to um, Atarp Military Cemetery, please have a look because they've actually done something that's unusual there they've actually buried the officers and the nurses um in a a separate plot which no doubt the other ranks would assume that was exactly what uh, was going to happen with officers and nurses you mentioned Lysenhoke and these great cemeteries Etarp and and all the other great hospital cemeteries talk to us a little bit about those hospital cemeteries because whenever I visit the battlefields Andy it's just every every cemetery tells a different story and you see the little haphazard battlefield ones right in the front line and then you see the the concentration cemeteries that were made after the war the hospital cemeteries always tell incredible stories just talk us talk to us a little bit about the hospital cemeteries okay well i mean but basically what you've got at remy sidings um listen hook as as it now is is a, a, a railhead uh, where uh, there are a cluster of casualty clearing stations. Now, the reason there's a cluster is because each of those casualty clearing stations is responsible for, by 1917, a a different type of injury. Head injuries, thoracic injuries, abdominal injuries. Noel Chavas is buried uh, at a CCS which specialised in abdominal injuries. Uh, And ironically, the the doctor in charge of it was Martin Leake, the only other man to have two VCs. So what we've got then is a situation where casualties are brought in, they've come off the battlefield, they will still be wearing their uniforms and boots and that kind of thing. And if during the time they are there, they die from their injuries. Um, My grandfather's uh, uh, cousin, um, Harry Robert Shaw, uh, died at Baclasud Casualty Clearing Station. He's buried there. So what would happen is that that, that on a a quiet day, there might be one or two burials. On On a busy day, there might be many, many more. And you look at them very often, they're able to to lay them out very carefully. And then you look at date order and that date order will tell you what was happening on a particular day or about the day before. But the amazing thing is that if you get as far back as a casualty clearing station, your chances of dying are 2%, 2%. If you've got that far, you're probably going to make it. But of course, with no penicillin, if you get, you know, a, 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 an infection, that's probably it because we, we just couldn't, we can't treat the onset of gangrene or an abdominal injury like that. Um, beginning of the war, 40% people with an abdominal injury will die. Uh, it drops as the war goes on. 
Wow, that's just extraordinary figures. I, you know, it, it's it always felt to me that a, a, a serious wound was a fifty-fifty death sentence, and uh, that that's quite extraordinary. How how much it's evolved, particularly since, particularly from battle battlefields like the American Civil War and and and, and onwards from there. It's really quite extraordinary how it evolves. I mean, one of the things that that, that the, some of your older listeners might be aware of is this kind of not going out in dirty underwear. Um, and actually, because it's embarrassing when you go to the hospital, the real reason is that before a major battle, soldiers were given clean underwear so that fragments of dirty underwear aren't carried into a wound. And we've, we've got to remember that as a bit of folk memory, uh, because clearly that that's a problem and it was causing infection I- into a wound. Um, because clearly, you know, uh, dirt getting into a wound is going to be a problem exactly the same way that the ramc developed the steel helmet uh, uh, and promote it to stop infected head injuries caused by bits of dirty cap steel helmets don't stop people you know necessarily getting hit but they don't get so much filth carried into the wound if that happens because clearly you, you, you can't put a tourniquet on, on on someone's neck um you know that's the problem it's uh, another thing that I heard about this uh, that uh, was a, another issue, uh, particularly in the Somme, was that for centuries, Somme farmers had fertilised the land by mixing manure and water and then spraying that all over the ground. So the, the, the soil itself was quite contaminated in that region and, uh, and greatly contributed to, uh, to the risk of infection. Have I, have I remembered that correctly? You have remembered it correctly, but what might surprise you is as the war goes on, um, the onset of gangrene drops, and you're going to think, well, well, why is that one? Well, the answer is because the farmers stop farming. Uh, they are not there. They're not adding that bacteria every year. And although the battlefield people go, oh, it's filthy, it's not as filthy as it would have been with farming practice, which is ironic, isn't it? Really, absolutely uh, that, extraordinary. Hey, yeah, uh, uh, but also at the same time, we get better at dealing with it because, I mean, in the Boer War, if you were, were shot, it was quite common just to clean the wound up and sew it up. Um, in, in the Great War, with that bacteria you're talking about, um, actually, that's a, an ideal way to lead to the onset of, of infection. So we learn not to do that. So we d- d- learn not to do what's called primary suture, not to sew up straight away. We do it differently. But that's all, I'm afraid, by experience. Medical treatment obviously didn't end with the end of the war, and for many of these men, they dealt with these injuries for the rest of their lives. I've seen those horrific photos of facial wounds in particular, which were not that uncommon on the battlefields, unfortunately, with people lying down, explosives, machine guns, shell fire. Um, talk to us a little bit about what it meant for men when they came home, particularly in an era before, you know, when plastic surgery was rudimentary. Um, you know, you've got people who've lost limbs, you've got people with hideous facial wounds. I understand that losing a jaw was a relatively common injury because of the nature of the way the face is made. I mean, it's gruesome stuff. Just talk to us about what sort of what sort of life these men could have expected when they came back from the war. Okay, I mean, one of the things that 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 your listeners might like to do, I do and do not ask me what it's called in English, but the, in French it's called "see you up there." It's actually about the whole process of dealing with it, and. Uh, the, the the French system early on in the war, and we did the same thing, was for facial injuries, was actually to get a um, a, a, a piece of tin and to get a, a very skilled person to make a copy of the other side of your face or to rebuild your jaw with something that, that looked like flesh and was painted and might even have a glass eye in it. But clearly that was not going to work for, for many people. And as the war goes on, basically dealing with the hospital, St. Mary's Hospital at Sidcup, it becomes the centre for plastic surgery and we're able to use all sorts 
of reconstructive uh, techniques. And the reason we can do that is because there are so many people to, frankly, experiment with. And we get better and better and better at doing it uh, the longer the war goes on. The analogy I would like to use there is that actually uh, in Northern Ireland, one of the punishments used by the terrorists was what was called kneecapping, shot through the knee. Um, if you got a knee injury anywhere in the UK, Northern Ireland was the best place to be for any kind of normal knee injury because the surgeons there had seen lots and lots and lots of examples of it. Um, so it's bizarre, isn't it, how you can actually get good, that that's kind of thing, human tragedy, but in the end with, with great benefits. And what sort of life did these men face? Was Were there, as they came back as wounded veterans with these terrible injuries, was there sympathy towards them in the public? I mean, did they have any chance of meeting a young lady and getting married and getting on with a normal life or was it a not were they pariahs when they came back from the war no no i think some clearly um, some industries for example the post office went out of its way to to employ people who had been variously disfigured or disabled the the, the cinema industry wait for it um advertised for people with facial injuries to work as projectionists because nobody needs to see them does that make sense? <laughs> that's it. That's, so, that's you know, amazing. That, isn't that, but, but it was giving them paid employment. Clearly, some people never, ever recover. One of my relatives um, shot through the lung in 1914, um, came back, made a recovery of a sorts, got very drunk with his mates and went and volunteered. And the army took him and he lost both arms. Um, and his uh, wife never let him forget it, that he ne- didn't need to go back, but he went back. Uh, and that's what happened to him. So clearly there are some tragedies. And I met a, a, a gentleman who cried when he told me that that his um, childhood was stolen from him on the 1st of July, 1916. And I said, well, how did your dad die? No, no, no. But he could never play with me. Uh, and that, that kind of story is one we need to remember. It's just heart wrenching stuff. And, and one thing I'd like to say to people as well, who may be listening in Australia is um, a place to just explore this story of what happened to people after the war in more detail is in Adelaide at West Terrace Cemetery, where there's an extraordinary plot in the cemetery with 2000 men buried there who all died after the war from their war related injuries. And they're all buried under headstones, which are very similar to the Commonwealth War Cemetery headstones. There's a cross of sacrifice there. But the whole cemetery is just a testament to the suffering that a lot of these men went through. So I think it's really important, Andy, that we remember that it didn't, you know, this suffering didn't end with the end of the war, did it? No, far from it. And, and in fact, I, I, there's a cemetery just near Cambrai, um, just just to, to, to the east of Cambrai. And there, are, there are casualties from 1917. There are casualties from the, the, the German advance in 1918. And then there are casualties, uh, because clearly there was a casualty clearing station there, or perhaps something bigger. Um, and um, there are casualties then that die on the 11th of November, 13th of November, 15th of November, 8th of December, because the war ends, but, but you know the suffering doesn't end. Well, Andy, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this, because it's a topic, I don't think it gets enough attention. We, we tend to gloss over it just with the, uh, the, the statement, he was wounded in action. But it, there's so much to it. It's just wonderful to, to dig a little bit deeper into it and find out some of these great stories. So thank you so much for, uh, for just taking the time. Absolutely. And and if people want to, if they want to see the movie 1917, if, if you look at all those wounded laid out at what is really a casualty clearing station, to be perfectly honest, um, um, all those bandages 
uh, that was me and my team because I, I, I worked on that part of the film and, and, and a few other bits. And we tried to make that as realistic as we could, uh, which oddly involved working with, although it doesn't show very clearly, with a number of uh, military amputees. And it was very, very odd bandaging somebody who actually had already been bandaged in Afghan or, or, or Iraq. That, that was, it was a, a sobering moment in, in the movie. I'm absolutely not surprised. Just before we go, Andy, tell us more about your work on 1917 because it's remiss of me not to mention it. It was a wonderful work you did on that film. Just tell us a little bit more about what you did. Well, I was very lucky. I mean, I'd worked for um, um, Peter Jackson on, on They Shall Not Grow Old, um, doing lots and lots of work to do with, with what was happening on, on the, the, the scene, or on the screen, that kind of thing. That led to being phoned up um, by a producer of 1917, um, meeting Sam Mendes, doing the research on Sam's grandfather, Alfred Mendes, uh, who <laughs> was wounded uh, a couple of times and very, very ill at the end of the war. Um, and then working um, for months on the film. So, for example, if anybody knows their uh, battalions, the 8th Battalion, the Surreys, the battalion that we chose um, in conjunction with the costume department, um, would have been wearing leather equipment. But Schofield um, is wearing the 08 webbing because I pointed out that the 08 webbing was very much the mark of a professional soldier and much, much admired. And if you could get it, you wore it. So the two men wear different webbing to show their status, one as the newbie and then one as the experienced soldier. So we tried to get every nuance we could into the film as it went on. And, and sometimes it worked and, and sometimes it didn't. It just wasn't going to work on the screen. But it was a fantastic experience. Well, that's wonderful. I think we'll get you back on the podcast at some stage soon, mate, to talk specifically about that movie because um, I'm very happy to do that. Very it's happy. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, we we want more people to know about the First World War, and that was a great uh, addition to the uh, to the catalogue of movies to uh, to expand our knowledge about the First World War. Andy, it's always a pleasure uh, talking to you about these things, mate. I'm looking forward when we can travel again. I'm looking forward to catching up with you in uh, in the UK to talk all things war, mate. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, fine. Well, I, I, as they say, see you on the other side. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.